Hi, this is Arnie Arneson, and this is episode two of Race Class with BU Law Professor Jonathan Feingold. We address the question, what is racism? And I want to remind everyone that since everyone is so afraid of talking about systemic racism, if we're afraid to allow teachers to have this sort of uncomfortable conversation, guess what? Race Class takes up the challenge. Now listen to episode two of Race Class with Jonathan Feingold. And I wrote something the other day when I was tweeting out that everyone needs to pay attention to this show and to the podcast and make sure they take every class for the next uh, year. And then I wrote, since the GOP fears teaching students about systemic racism and refuses to allow teachers to tackle the question, why does racism and inequality still exist after the civil rights movement? We, WNHN and Jonathan Feingold, take up the challenge. And this in part explains why I reached out to him and said, I want you to teach me. And he said, okay, Arnie, we're starting race class. This is episode two. And Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Lots of conversation that you have sort of created both on my Twitter feed as well, especially on my Facebook page. I sent you a lot of the conversation and that's been great. That's been great because people who think they're liberal are being challenged by other liberals. People are being conservative going, wait, I didn't think about that. So in a lot of ways, it's fostered great conversation. And yet you said how you want to start episode two is you want to ask, what is the classic question? What is racism? And I think that is the whole nugget of why we started last month and why we're beginning now is that I think everyone has a very different interpretation of it. And yet that interpretation is going to dictate how we address it how we see it, and how we try to fix the situation that we've created in this country. All that is correct. And I'm so glad and honored to be back here with you, Arnie, and just appreciate the space that you've created so that we can have this series of conversations about race and racism and a lot of uh, interconnected topics. Um, and as we were just talking about, you know, just in the past week, arguably just in the past couple of days, so much has been happening that I think just reinforces the need to be having many of the types of conversations that you and I are having here, this being only one of them. And uh, one thing that I just wanted to mention at the outset is for anyone who listens to this conversation or other conversations and, I don't know, is anywhere from angry and concerned to just simply curious, I would, I just want to plug a couple other places you can go to get other really sort of insightful and helpful content. One is uh, the most recent episode, I believe, of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where he had this incredible about 28-minute segment on what I think he framed as the moral panic around uh, critical race theory. Incredibly well done, incredibly well researched. I think individuals like Jennifer Berkshire, who is a sort of a leading uh, education policy journalist in the country, has actually helped to provide some of just like the research behind it, but really informative, you know, and really, you know, it's like high quality production value, John Oliver stuff. So if you're interested, I suggest you take a look. 
In this upcoming Monday at 8 p.m., the last day of Black History Month, the African American Policy Forum is going to be hosting a conversation titled, Is This the Last Black History Month? Featuring Kimberly Kent, Crenshaw, Jelani Cobb, Sherilyn Eiffel, and Cornell West. And so just another space for anyone who's interested in um, continuing to sort of have these conversations, be part of other conversations. Um, it's, you know, it's an event that I'm certainly going to be checking out, and I would uh, recommend others do as well. And let me just say that on my Facebook page, I will put links and reminders to all that information. So you can always find it by going either to the Attitudes Facebook page or my personal Facebook page. But I do think what's interesting, as you mentioned, will this be the last Black History Month, is that they're almost, again, in an attempt to whitewash, it's word wash. They're literally telling us that we cannot even talk about racism, that somehow to talk about racism is to create the impression that we are supporting or understanding what, what I, I think somehow it's don't ask, don't tell. That's how I feel. It's like if we don't ask the questions, then we think it doesn't exist. And that's really, I think, what the attempt is of the of many of my friends on the other side of the aisle are trying to do, saying you're the problem because you want to talk about it. And if you really want to deal with racism, then let's move on and not talk about it as if it's possible to move on. And I think, Jonathan, that's where people begin to forget why history is so critical to us. And it's not just critical to us about race. It's critical to us about every aspect of our present and future lives. So with that, and in part because our time is so short, I just want to quickly run through where I think our conversation is going to go today. And, you know, Arnie, you and I, like, we may go off script once or we might just like totally fall off script. My sense is that we'll proceed like largely in three acts. The first act is identifying like, what is the fight? And I'm going to suggest that the fight, or at least one of the important fights right now is over how we define racism. Act two, we're going to turn to a recent win, and that win was a jury verdict finding that the three individuals who, you know, I think it's fair to say hunted and then killed Ahmaud Arbery were convicted in a federal hate crimes trial. So that's act two, and that's the win. Uh, and then act three is going to be the loss, or at least um, a question of when a win can actually um, carry some trap doors or some pitfalls uh, with it. And the question is going, that we're going to ask is, when you have successful, I would say, critical, in some ways, like deeply out of the norm, uh, convictions holding individuals accountable for acts of racial violence, is there a way in which that trial and the narrative surrounding that trial might actually undermine our collective ability to remedy racism in America? And so the question is, can a win actually, if not a loss, that might be an overstatement, but uh, you know, carry risk? And I have the answer, you know, just sort of foreshadowing where we're going is yes. And the post, then we'll have some postscript, maybe ask some questions, but that's where we're headed. And, you know, I thought maybe we would start by, you know, a, I don't know, a mailbox or inbox segment or actually respond to some of the communications that we've received. And we talked about this, Arnie, but like, you know, this would be great. We actually foster some dialogue with the folks who are not in with us in the room, but are engaging in the show. People did ask the question about the definition. I did get it. And I think people want a sentence. They want a paragraph. They want it easy and clean. You know what they want? They want it black and white. That's what they want. They want it black and white. And I think when I told them, you know, episode two is what is racism? I think the whole idea of defining it is such a challenge because it doesn't come down to something simple. That's what we discovered this week is how unsimple it was, whether it was 
the discussion of the uh, Arbery murder case. And we saw that for the first time, I believe, in Georgia history, they were able to sort of, you know, win on a hate crimes. And then and I mentioned to you, and because a lot of us were talking about this, about the two kids at the mall, you know, that where the, the cops came in to break up a fight and they ended up handcuffing the person they perceived as the black kid, whether they knew whether he was the cause of the fight or not. And what they perceived as the white kid was put on, you know, a bench and said, you're fine. Well, you know, wait for your mom and dad to come. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, which one's racism? But if they're both racism, then how do you define it? I deeply appreciate the desire to have a clear, authoritative definition of something like racism. That's not what we're going to do today uh, for multiple reasons. And I, and I think that um, anyone who's listening will um, hopefully understand why that's, you know, why I don't actually think that's a productive way to have this conversation. Different question that I want to ask is, one, why does our definition of racism matter? And obviously the definition will always be contested, but we might say, well, there is a mainstream sort of dominant way that we as Americans, and obviously that's obscuring a whole lot of uh, diversity among who Americans are. But if we were to say that there's sort of, you know, a dominant definition, like why does that matter? How we define it? And so uh, let's start answering that question. Why does it matter? So I come from a political background where I had to write policy. So we're talking right now about Georgia and the hate crimes. Also, hate crimes statute, which meant they had to write something to define a hate crime. Okay, they had to define something that would allow what we just saw happen in Georgia happen. But is that the only way we address and define racism is through a hate crime, then we're screwed. Because if racism is so much more than that, then I can't write every kind of possible policy to describe what racism is unless we have a collective education so that we're sensitive to recognizing that was a racist act. There isn't a law that says you shouldn't do it. But guess what? There's a moral reason why you shouldn't do it. Yeah, and we'll see if by the end of our conversation today, even if what our goal, even if our goal is not to provide a single authoritative definition, if we have, you know, walked through some ideas that actually enable you or anyone else to, you know, for themselves have a sort of more clear, maybe coherent um, and encompassing definition of this thing that we call racism. But so, so let me just start by asking, why does the definition matter? Part of why it matters is because in the United States, there is broad consensus that racism is bad. Like across political parties, something that occurred during the civil rights movement, there was a shift where we recognize as a country that racism is bad. That didn't mean that everyone's sort of morals and political commitments changed, but as a, you know, as a national community, racism is something that is like nearly universally condemned as bad. If something equals racist, and particularly if there's sort of community agreement that it's racist, then there's a moral imperative to confront it, to condemn it, and to remedy it. So it also should be no coincidence that backlash to civil rights and projects that are attempting to either thwart or roll us back always appropriate the language of equality. Terms like reverse racism, why do you leverage or mobilize a term like reverse racism? Because you know that politically we've agreed racism is bad. And so if something that someone else is doing, if you can get everyone to agree that, you know, maybe it's not the same as the former racism, but it's still a new iteration of racism, then that's a way to delegitimize or discredit it. This sort of racial politicking in the 11 point plan that the GOP through Rick Scott released the other day. And so, you know, point two is titled colorblind equality. 
colorblind equality trades on a particular definition of racism. Yeah, what's it say? I'm just reading off the screen now. Government will never again ask American citizens to disclose their race, ethnicity, or skin color, or any other government form. And then the first sentence of the sort of subtext, we are going to eliminate racial politics in America. This is racial politics. Yeah. What I think is really important for us to just recognize is that this is racial politics. The contestation over what racism is, that is racial politics. And there are certain mainstream notions of racism that actually lead us to this notion of colorblind equality that is, you know, embedded within uh, this 11 point plan. And so I think, you know, we'll have a little bit more conversation and see how we get there and how a win like a federal hate crimes conviction actually, if we're not careful, can facilitate what we see here. Explain why you are nervous about the decision that was just rendered. Not that you don't support the decision in Georgia, the finding of hate crimes by this, by this, but what is it as you look at this and you want to sort of, I mean, how do you celebrate something where someone ends up dead and it's, it's horrific, but at the same time, what is your fear? What is your fear from that decision? Play it out for the audience because I want them to understand why it has it, it, it's important, but that we have to be aware what it could then ultimately limit in our conversation about racism. Great. And so I think to be crystal clear, like I, I celebrate this verdict, notwithstanding the fact that I might have like much broader critiques about how we continue to hold individuals accountable when they engage in, you know, illegal activity. We are throwing people into cages again. Like there's a whole conversation we could have about how that's problematic. But again, in the history of this country, there has been little, if any, accountability for both police violence and um, vigilante violence against like members of uh, racialized groups. Uh, and so moments of accountability are important. My concern is the narrative. My concern has to do with the way in which the conversation about racism that was a, has been occurring with respect to this trial, how I think that that tends to reinforce a mainstream conception or view of, about racism that's actually quite narrow. But before we get into that, I want to play a little game. Um, this is race class. In my classes, we always play games. We tend to play more games when the conversations enter increasingly serious and fraught territory, because I think there's just a learning benefit to it, to playing games. And so I'm just going to ask you some questions, Arnie. Uh, we haven't talked about this, so you are on the spot. You're being very brave and courageous here. I appreciate um, uh, your willingness to participate. It's not like a law school classroom where you enter and you know you might get cold called, but just some questions. If your goal, I know this is not your goal, but hypothetically, if one's goal is to insulate the existing distribution of wealth, power, and resources from critique, so if you want to insulate how things are right now from critique, are you going to define racism broadly to capture a lot of things or narrowly to capture a few things? Obviously, narrowly. So narrowly. So if the goal is to insulate what I'll just, you know, I'll use a, a fancy academic term, the status quo from critique, you'll define racism narrowly. Why? Because doing so, it rationalizes how things are. It just legitimizes the way the world is because we know racism is bad. And so if it's not racism that's causing it, then it's not something bad that's causing it. If your goal, Arnie, is to discredit anti-racist efforts, 
how would you define racism? Would you define it broadly or would you define it narrowly? So if you're trying to discredit the protests that came out of 2020 and all the efforts that were happening in school to all the efforts to have more anti-racist curriculum, are you going to, if you're going to try to, you know, to discredit our national turn to anti-racism, are you going to define racism broadly or narrowly? Well, it would seem to me that you're defining it broadly because you want to sweep in all this activity and basically say, aha, so what you could do is kind of a smorgasbord. When I want it narrow, I get it narrow. When I want it broad, I get it broad, but it still serves the same purpose. Again, you're defining racism narrowly. I mean, it's like you're, you're defining. And so we'll get to why defining it narrowly in the way that you do enables you to uh, malign anti-racist work as the new racism. But we'll get there and this is class. And so like- If I saw all of the Black Lives Matter movements and I did whatever, that, oh, by, so by a, by a narrow definition, when I'm coming down hard on them, it's not that I'm being a racist. It's that I'm basically having defined racism in a very narrow way. Therefore, I can look at them as being disruptive. I can look at them as something that sort of fears my safety and security and that my actions are not de derived by racism. My actions are derived by the safety and security of the community. Well, so I'm actually saying something a little bit different. And now we're going to, the oh, game's going to get a little bit more concrete. Oh, like this is like, this is the process. Arnie, you are doing great. So I'm going to give you, and this I think is helpful for everyone who's listening in. Uh, and this is hard. I'm going to, and it's not about being right or wrong. It's about working through this conversation. I'm going to give you a definition of racism. It's not like, I'm not saying I, condone these definitions, but I'm going to give you a definition. And then if that's what we were to agree racism is, I want you to tell me what is the prescription? What is the remedy? Okay. So the first definition, this is not necessarily one that I hold, but the first definition of racism is seeing race. Seeing race is racist. Some people say that. Some people, if you see race, you are racist. What is the remedy to that particular conception of racism. What the Republicans just basically did under Scott, which is exactly which is basically to say we, we can't even ask the question anymore about your race, or your gender, or your ethnicity, because to ask the question is to be racist. So therefore, if we don't ask the question, then we're off the hook. We're not racist. Exactly. And so that is a moment of racial politicking. That's a that's a moment of contestation of a fight over what racism is, because if you can get a definition of racism that is seeing race, then your remedy is colorblindness, where you ignore, you don't see, you don't track race. And anytime someone tries to see race, like in an anti-racist like curriculum, then you say, no, you are seeing race and we have this definition of racism. And so you are being racist. Again, it's bad faith politics, but the lesson is that if you define racism, in a society that agrees racism's bad, then you win. I want to bring this in, into the culture conversation. So I kept telling you that I'm watching this series on NBC called This Is Us. And there is a part in the series where they have, they've adopted a little black baby. And now he's about 10 or 12 years old. And at one point in time, he goes, I love you. The father, the white father says, I love you. I love you. He said, but do you see me, dad? And he goes, I see my son. I said, no, do you see me? And what the little black boy is saying, do you see me? I am a black boy. I am not a white boy. You say, no, I see my son. I said, but you're not seeing me. And that was such a profound moment where the father is crushed because he says, I love you. He said, no, I love, I know you love me, but you, you've got to see me. 
And me is a black child, not just your son. And you have to acknowledge that. And that was in This Is Us. And it was like a profound moment of the question that you're asking me. The father thought he was doing the right thing, the anti-racist thing. I just see my son. And the young black boy is, but you've got to see more. I am a young black boy. And I thought that's exactly what you're kind of saying. And there's the tension right there. One thing that I think you are also that you're speaking to is that for a generation of Americans, particularly Americans who, you know, have grown up understanding themselves to be white or like being racially identified as white, you are taught that the way to be racially polite is to not see race. Like that's what you are taught. Like for a generation, you've been taught that like colorblindness is the way to be racially polite. But what does that do? It denies the fact that race is relevant. And so in addition to being able to critique remedial efforts that attend to things like racism as the immoral act, as opposed to just like modest attempts to try to rectify the past, that narrow definition of racism is also telling a story about race. It's saying that race doesn't matter. It's saying race doesn't matter. It's saying that an individual's racial identity or the, a group that they're a part of has no impact on their ability to move through the world. It means that race has no impact on whether an individual is going to be exposed to premature death yeah. or whether or not someone's dignity um, or life is going to be more or less valued. So the fight over racism is not just a fight over racism. It's also implicating a whole other set of conversations. Um, and so I know we're really short on time. So then let me get into the trial, a trial that where the, the verdict was the right verdict, that we really shouldn't have had to have a conversation about whether or not the particular the individuals who killed him at Arbery did so with racial animus. Like That was clear. But the questions that we were asking in that case and questions that I think have been sort of moving through a lot of, you know, our our national conversation on this is, did a bad person do a bad thing because they hold an immoral view? And so essentially what we're asking is whether an individual, like an individual perpetrator, because of something in their heart and their head engage in a bad act. Okay. It's a very narrow way to think about racism. It's not to say that's not racist, but it's an extremely narrow way to think about racism. Among other things, it means we're interested in what's in people's heads. And like we should be, but it also means that we're forgetting one of the key lessons from the summer of 2020, that racism largely is a structural phenomenon. And so a question, if to the extent we're interested in the ideas in someone's head, we might have a question about, well, how do those ideas get there? What are the stories that we're telling? Like, and so this is a question for the mainstream media. I mean, the Baltimore Sun, I think it was recently, I think you shared with me sort of their mea culpa for just a legacy of engaging in a particular mode of racial discourse that was both, among other things, producing the, the stereotypes, the attitudes that are pervasive across American society that are one of the reasons, not the only, that certain individuals because of race are exposed to premature death. I promise that I would not give an authoritative definition on racism, but I'll just offer this alternative. What if as opposed to racism is seeing race is that racism is a society in which certain individuals because of their racial identity, perceived racial identity, are exposed to premature death? 
That's just reframing. It is reframing, and it's but it's it's even more than premature death. I mean, because of that history, because of that legacy, they're not able to establish the economic security of people of another color. There's an economic aspect to it. There's a premature death aspect to it. There's so many fingers on that hand that happens as a result. And if we don't ask the question, then we won't see that those results were driven by our failure to address that history of racism. It's a denial of that history that makes you sort of accept what you're seeing now as if it's not driven by that failure. It also, and like that definition that I gave is neither all encompassing, it's not comprehensive, it's not authoritative, but it's a different way that leads to us asking different questions and prescribing different remedies. It also, I think, forces us, or at least invites us to take really seriously the question, if we're someone who either for many years or more recently has like begun to embrace this notion of structural racism, that seems to suggest that racism is not the exception to the rule, but that racism might actually be pervasive and embedded within American society. And part of our job is to better understand how. And then it like, you know, invites us to ask a different question that is in part meant to be provocative, also in part just meant to leave everyone with, what year did the United States no longer become a racist society? If you ask that question on both sides of the aisle, they couldn't answer. Like Rick Scott, who wants to you know, be race blind and wants to pass these, these new laws that says you can't ask a question. If you asked Rick Scott that question, what year was US, the U.S. no longer a racist society? I would love to have someone ask him that question because and, I would love to see how he tackles the answer. Well, I can tell you what he would say. He would say maybe Brown v. Board of Education, maybe 1964, when we, for the first time, you know, Congress passed federal anti-discrimination legislation, you know, notwithstanding the longest filibuster in history at the time. Like that's might be like what he says. And again, though, the fight is over how we're defining what racism is. Rick Scott's a smart guy. He knows he's engaging in racial politics right here. And part of what he is doing is marshalling a narrow, but rather mainstream definition of racism and the danger from federal hate crimes litigation, even when successful, is that it reinforces the same underlying conceptions of race and racism that Rick Scott is relying on to offer, you know, some like deeply disturbing point two in his 11 point plan. This was episode two of Race Class with BU Law Professor Jonathan Feingold. And as I reminded you, if we are afraid of teaching about systemic racism, we refuse to allow people like teachers to tackle the question, why does racism and inequality still exist after the civil rights movement? The reason you're taking race class is that we can figure out how to answer these questions. Thank you so much, Jonathan Feingold. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Arnie. All you folks that you own my life never made me sacrifice Demons there on my trail Standing at the crossroads of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side
you got my price Did you sell all that is mine Big money rules and all else fails Go sell your soul, keep your shell I'm trying to protect what I keep inside All the reasons why I 